Hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing The Cruise of the Hippocampus by Alfred Loomis, and we're on Chapter 4. Chapter 4. Misfortune Overtakes Us If a cruise in a yawl were all plain sailing, there would be little to chronicle but the state of the sea and the colour of the clouds at sunrise. Running free before a breeze which obligingly shifted with the outline of the coast, she would diminish her latitude like a coastwise steamer, her log so barren of entry that a skipper would have to draw on his imagination for publishable material. Luckily, the fates have provided that in the Odyssey of the Hippocampus there shall be no mention of halcyon days, hardly any record of fair winds, and almost a superfluity of unorthodox adventures. Yet, after a month of cruising, no fatal accident has befallen. In a retrospect of what did occur on a night at Mayport, Florida, this seems a shade unusual. Much more in accordance with our expectation was the contrary slant of wind which greeted us as, ten days in advance of the cataclysmic occurrence here and after to be described, we nosed our way between the jetties at Charleston and set sail for a run to Savannah. Between entrances, it is a distance that Gar Jr. or another of the moderns could do in two hours, and the weather was of the sort that would delight the paddler of a 13-foot canoe. But the hippo, indifferent to meteorological conditions, pointed her bowsprit as close as she could to a vagrant breath from the southwest, and in two hours was still visible from the entrance buoys. Twelve hours later... Half a day of calm, spasmodic breezes and rolled up banks of cumulus that merely threatened sudden squalls of wind, we dropped the 18-mile beam of Charleston light and called it our day of least accomplishment. Midnight found us totally becalmed with the range lights of an approaching steamer bearing directly down on us. A well-directed flash of our portable searchlight called his attention to us and we had the satisfaction of seeing him alter course to pass around us. Until mid-afternoon of the next day, May 27th, we fared but little better in point of mileage. Sights taken in the morning and at noon with the Brandis sextant gave me a fix that was 10 miles northeastward of our dead reckoning position, and I gained a new idea of the leeway which a small boat will make tacking against light airs. We were becoming almost reconciled to picking up Charleston light vessel astern of us when at 3.45, a moderate breeze sprang up from the northeast, and we squared away for Martin's industry light vessel. We picked it up at dusk, our usual hour for making such landfalls, and the wind became gusty, shortened sail, and scudded for Tybee lighted buoy at the entrance to the Savannah River. Showers of rain came with the wind and blasted our hopes of completing a run between ports without donning oilers. At midnight, when we started the motor and picked up the first range of Tybee roads, I embarked upon an experience that was as new as it was interesting, that of entering a strange harbour without adequate charts. In New York, when I made up my portfolio, Savannah was so far away that a difference in date of 10 years did not seem vital, and I included a few charts that had been used on a previous cruise. But when we were in the roads and I saw that almost every range and other navigational light in the vicinity had been changed within the decade, I regarded the matter very differently. However, 
I took my data from the light list and, cheered if not exactly aided by a moon which shone through the clouds and illuminated port hand boys on our quarter, the little hippo worked up above quarantine and came to anchor to await a fair tide. The turn came at 8am and under the heat of a sultry sun we started up the Savannah River, experiencing for the first time the sensation of stepping on red-hot decks with bare feet. The motor kicked us along busily to within three miles of Savannah, where we turned and followed the inside route to Thunderbolt, since, as everyone knows who has cruised south, Savannah is to be shunned as a city of waterfront smells and high docks. But this Georgian city is also a place of delightful hospitality and delicious rebel tendencies, and we were the pampered guests of men who had served in our late difficulty with Germany, as well as of those who had fought in the war. Squib chased the ball around a lynx whose bunkers were fashioned from Civil War breastworks, and at one home we were invited to inspect round shot fired from Federal guns which had rusted in the soil for 50 years after they had missed their objective. At a dinner party, and this once more reminded us of the bad old days, we made the acquaintance of Mr. Tom Collins, and listening to the clink of ice in the glasses, rejoiced that Savannah is still a rebel city. We had been at anchor some hours in Thunderbolt when the owner of a V-bottom speedboat came alongside and asked me, the crew having hit the beach in Liberty Whites, if I would like to explore with him the route which we would take on leaving. Inasmuch as my chart of Wassaw Sound, which lies to westward of Tybee Roads, was superannuated, and since the day, Saturday, was to be followed not only by Sunday, but by Decoration Day and then Jeff Davis's birthday, when all loyal storekeepers shut up shop, I accepted his offer with much thanks. We shot down the Wilmington River, and in but little more than an hour were arrived at the inlet, where, by observation and by instruction, I learned the lay of the land. Since my host of this occasion, who is a thoroughgoing but inland boatman, asked for information on points which to the crew of the hippocampus seemed self-evident, perhaps it will be well if I here interpolate a short catechism for the edification of readers. Question. Did you come down inside? Answer. No, we draw too much water to make inside running enjoyable, and we have made the whole distance outside, including the fearsome trip around Hatteras. Question. When you were outside, do you anchor at night? Answer. No, when dependent upon sail, one cannot rely on making harbours at dusk, and we run all night standing regular ship's watches. Question. Is it pretty dark out there at night, or do you use a searchlight? This I found to be a difficult answer to give in tabloid form. We do not use a searchlight because at times there is nothing to see but waves and given the opportunity they will come aboard for close inspection. It is dark on overcast nights except when lightning illuminates the horizon for brief intervals but on moonlit nights the sea is a huge cup of molten silver in which we float with the serenity of a gull and the buoyancy of a Portuguese man of war. Porpoises dive torpedo-like beneath our hull, leaving a wake of phosphorescence, and at a distance other great fish leap up and fall to the surface in a shower of pearls. Lighthouses cast their benignant radiance upon us, and once in a great while a stately steamer, catching the red and green beams of our running lights, alters course to avoid us. Night follows day with even regularity and is cut from pretty much the same cloth. 
A change is welcome, however, and doubly so when it comprises such a swimming party as we had at the home of Ambrose Gordon at Bewley, Georgia. There, on Sunday afternoon, we exhibited our sunburn, which in the south is always the mark of the northerner, and executed inept dives from a lofty springboard. In the cool of the evening, we returned aboard and prepared with sleep for a day at the Savannah Country Club, as the guests of Squibb's boyhood friend Murray Stewart, the son of the mayor of Savannah. By Tuesday morning, the sea fever was upon us again, and we weighed anchor and stood down the Wilmington River to Wassall Sound, passing through the inlet and leaving on either hand snowy white beaches where ancient sea turtles land and lay hundreds of eggs in order that Georgians may know the gastronomic possibilities of gutta percha. Once clear of the sea buoy off Wassaw, we stopped the motor and hoisted sail, taking full advantage of a moderate breeze that had come up overnight from the northeast. All that day we ran free, now with the sheets to port, and again, after a carefully executed jibe, with them to starboard, and by night we were abreast of Brunswick Light Vessel. With darkness came a material increase in the strength of the wind, and by midnight it was blowing briskly enough to log us six knots under forestaysail and spanker, as our jib and jigger have been termed in southern waters. At 3.30 of the next morning, June 1st, we rounded St John's Lighted Boy and made for the entrance between the jetties. Again, the dead of night found us entering a strange harbour with an antiquated chart, for our efforts to procure a new one of St John's River had been unsuccessful. But this occasion was not the moonlit excursion that we had staged at Tybee Roads. All night the wind had blown more briskly until at that hour it had developed into a full-fledged nor'easter, one which was to continue, by the way, for ten whole days before the doldrums got the better of it, and to add to the merriment the tide was at its maximum flood and sweeping terrifically across the mouth of the river. In studying the sailing directions to acquire information which our chart could not give me, I learned that if a vessel becomes unmanageable here in a northerly wind and a flood tide, she is almost certain to be a total loss on one of the jetties. This added zest to the early morning hours and gave point to a sudden call from Chambers clinging to the mainmast and peering into the darkness. Jetty! Dead ahead! Strangely enough, I was not alarmed. We were running under power with only the jigger set to steady us in the sea that was boiling in towards the jetties, and for some minutes I had been holding the hippocampus on the first set of range lights. But to do so against the current, I had been obliged to head four points to northward of the course. Hence it was that we seemed to be making for the north jetty, and hence my reply to Chambers' call, we couldn't hit that one if we tried. Do you see the south jetty? In another minute the strain on the helm was eased, and although my eyes were held as if by self-hypnosis on the white lights of the range, I knew that we had passed between the converging jetties and would soon be in quiet water. A few minutes later, my assurance was entirely dissipated when I failed to distinguish a crossover range from a dozen winking lights and nearly piled up on the south jetty, but after describing two full circles, the mizzen flapping until Paul jumped to the halyards and doused it, I got my bearings again and we continued to be guided by the abbreviated instructions in the light list. Daylight overtook us abreast of Mayport and we carried the flood to Jacksonville, jib and jigger once more set to assist the engine. Arriving there at 8am, we secured after a run which, though twice the distance from Charleston, Savannah, had been accomplished in less than half the time. 
We secured, as I say, and sent out a broadcast for Watson B. Donahue. Donny was my first skipper aboard the SC-131, as trimmer chaser as sailed the seven seas, and I've liked him ever since I stepped aboard his ship. I remember that I asked him with all the ardour of a new exec if he wanted me to turn out early the following morning to put the crew to work, and he answered, Sleep until noon if you wish. The work aboard this packet does itself. How could I help liking such a commanding officer? The crew did too, and when he left us with the flu at Gibraltar, they gave him a silver loving cup. That was at a time when mighty few commanding officers of sub-chasers were receiving tokens of affection from their crews, and he values it almost as much as he does his navy cross. But this is ancient history. Donnie picked up the broadcast, and it wasn't many hours before we were bowling over the brick highway to Pablo Beach. As it was Shriners Week in Jack's, the beach belonged to the Red Fez Gentry, and we visitors were able to dash into the surf occasionally without interfering with the action of the movie picture cameras. The northeaster blew with undiminished vigour, and it was with mingled feelings that we viewed the white caps tumbling over one another as far as the eye could reach. As a change, it was pleasant to be on the shoreward side of the line of breakers, but it was somewhat tantalising to be marking time on dry land, while a fair wind that would have blown us to Miami in short order was wasting itself on a deserted ocean. On the beach at Pablo, we asked Donny to attend a little council of war in which our future itinerary was discussed. Until our arrival at Jacksonville, we had been minded to strike off from the States at Miami, making Bimini the first and most important port, and from there working to Nassau and through the tongue of the ocean or Exuma Sound to the Windward Passage and thence between Cuba and Haiti to Jamaica. But just before our departure for the beach, I had been studying charts and sailing directions with more care and had been brought face to face with the fact that the Bahama Banks is a hostile region for a sailboat with small power. Lighted aids to navigations are few, harbours are fewer and the depths unless wide detours be taken are little better than a heavy dew. Moreover, there is little of interest along the route. These facts being presented to Donny, sitting in extraordinary session with the crew, it was unanimously voted that we omit the Bahamas from our itinerary and make Havana our first foreign port. From there it was decided that we shall carry the countercurrent along the Straits of Florida to Cape San Antonio at the northwestern end of Cuba, beat along the south shore of that island republic, and from a convenient jumping-off place make Jamaica, with Colon our next objective. Had we known what was to happen to us at Mayport in the night of the second day following, we could have spared ourselves immediate worry over ultimate adventures. On June 4th, with a liberal supply of peanut butter, jam and other necessities of a nomadic existence stowed beneath our decks, we cast off from our berth along the Jacksonville waterfront and stood down the river. En route, Squib, turning to in the galley with his accustomed vigour, cooked us up a chow that included among the vegetables a can of spinach. All went well until at 7pm we came to the very mouth of the jetties and saw an ominous looking pile of clouds backing against the northeast wind. Perhaps like the Roman army of olden times we had dallied too long at Capua enjoying the fruits of the land. Perhaps we misread the weather indications. In either event we put back to the town of Mayport and sought an anchorage. Finding after two attempts that the holding ground was poor, we weighed again and moored with our starboard side to a barge loaded with boulders for the jetties. 
Two hours later, the sky cleared and the night was perfect for sailing south, but when it was suggested to the crew that we shove off with the turn of the tide at midnight, the little tomains, which I believe were incipient in every can of spinach, registered a protest and we remained where we were. I happened to have an old-fashioned horror of going adrift from a mooring at night, and so I stayed awake until the tide was well on the ebb, and then, in addition to our bow and stern breast lines and a spring, ran another spring to a bit on the barge. Satisfied that nothing short of an earthquake would move us from our snug berth, I took a look around at the new barge to which we were moored, at a second barge lying upstream at the floating derrick above that, and at the lashings of the dink, secured athwartship in our cockpit. This dink was the joy of our life. It replaced the one we had lost in the storm off Fenwick Island Shoals and was the newly received gift of the Skinny Atlas Boat and Canoe Company. For nearly a thousand miles we had gone without a skiff and had moored to rickety, unsafe wharves because we were unable to otherwise get ashore at pleasure. Now that we had a new skiff with hippocampus painted in gold on both bows, we were determined that it should not get away from us, come what might in the weather line. Patting its varnished sides affectionately, I climbed over it, went below, crawled beneath my mosquito bar, and following the example already set by Chambers and Squib, passed out. Such is the effect of wind and sun upon us that we can never manage to go to sleep gracefully. We just pass out, not to awaken until in the normal order of events, Paul's mental alarm clock goes off inside his brain and he routes us out. But on this night at 1.05am we awoke simultaneously and completely to the cacophonous tune of splintering wood, of falling crockery and tinware, and, most ominous of all, to the sound of inrushing water. The exact sequence of events succeeding this babel of noise would probably be told differently by each member of the crew, and I admit that I was two dazed by the shock to know what had happened or was happening. At first, my only conscious act was to note the time told by the luminous dial of the watch strapped to my wrist, and that, I believe, was merely a reflex, emanating from the days when, as quartermaster in the Navy, I was trained to record events and the time of their occurrence. Chambers was first on deck. He had been catapulted from his pipe berth to my bunk, the mosquito netting proving no barrier to his flight. He landed in such a way that he suffered a contusion to one leg while I sustained a bruise on my breastbone, and I believe that he ricocheted from me and was surveying the damage on the top side before the ship had returned to an even keel. Squib followed him out of the companionway, and I came third, neither of us noticing that the doorway was unobstructed until Chambers cried out, Boys, the wherry's gone! But he was wrong. The wherry had been moved from cockpit to waist deck, but it was there in two pieces. The larger piece was the keel, frames and planking, and the smaller, the stern piece, cut away as neatly as though it had been chiselled. Nevertheless, my heart skipped a beat, and I remembered repeating over and over, if we had only put to sea. But what had happened to us? I hadn't an inkling of an idea, and Al and Paul admitted that they thought we had been cut down by a steamer. We were adrift with our bowline dangling entirely from the capstan, and one spring gone. The other, which had done duty also as the stern breast, was severed in one place and secured at its other end to the amidship bit of the barge bobbing in the water beside us. Around us there was a film of dust on the water, but the tide had already carried us out of sight of the barge and every other familiar object. 
It may have been seconds or it may have been minutes later that I found myself entering the cabin after a survey of the deck, preparing at Al's suggestion to start the engine. The noise of inrushing water had long since stopped, but as I stepped off the companionway ladder, a pool gurgled around my ankles and I knew that pumping was a prerequisite to getting underway. Then I thanked my lucky stars that I had brought, in addition to our ornamental brass pump, one of those galvanised affairs with a three-inch discharge. Paul turned to with this lifesaver, and in time the lower periphery of the flywheel was clear of the water. At this juncture, we still had no inkling of what had occurred. We knew that although we had been badly hurt, our fuel pipes were unbroken and that we were taking little more water. But we were uncertain of the condition of our power plant, and we were rapidly drifting stern first toward the jetties. Al, after straining up on deck, hoisted the jib and jigger, but there was insufficient air to stem the force of the tide. To anchor in the deep water of the channel seemed unwise, since we were not yet sure we would remain afloat. Within my own brain, circumstances and ideas were in a state bordering on chaos, up to the moment in which, working automatically, I went through the preliminary motions of starting the motor and placed my hands on the rim of the flywheel. With one turn, she was firing, and I closed the compression cocks and bounded to the deck. Taking the tiller, I glanced at the radio light compass, looked about me, and recognised one light of the many round us. Although embarked upon a sailing cruise, I am still enough of a motor boatman to feel the steadying effect of power, and the act of transmitting our motive force to the propeller cleared my brain and orientated me with respect to our position in the river. Then, despite the blackness of the night, it was a simple matter to buck the tide and make a landing alongside a tug secured to a wharf in Mayport. It was then, after two in the morning and time for chow, and for post-mortem examination and deductions, for we were still uncertain of the cause of our mishap. Chambers furnished the key from which the three of us worked out the details of the mystery. The stone barge to which we had been moored, falling with the ebbing tide, had caught its inboard side on a submerged pile and canted over, spilling its deck load of boulders in our direction. One stone weighing, we were informed later in the morning, ten tons, had carried away the eight by eight inch Samsa post of the barge to which we were moored before striking us. The first shock of the impact against our craft had been taken up by our unfortunate wherry, lashed directly in the way, and had given the hippocampus time to spring slightly away from the barge. The yawl had, of course, heeled over as soon as she felt the weight of the boulder, and as the dink crashed and was pushed to one side, the stone settled and nicked one corner of the deckhouse before striking the starboard waist deck and falling into the water. Another boulder had left its mark on the planking under the forward shrouds, and a third had scored one of the mizzen chain plates, but the major part of the 200 tons of rock with which the barge had been loaded passed harmlessly into the water. Arriving at these conclusions, we pumped the bilge dry and examined more carefully the damage to our deck and side. With relief, we found that no injury had been done below the waterline, and that aside from broken combing, deck cover strip and three planks in the topside which were crushed in part and would require renewal, we were unharmed. The frames and knees were uninjured, and the seams being tight, we were taking water only in one place above the waterline, where the small waves splashed up against a fractured plank. A canvas patch battened over the damaged area kept out the water, and by eight o'clock 
we were underway for Jacksonville, a much-needed breakfast tucked beneath our belts and a measure of composure in our minds. Motoring up the river, past the disabled barge, we had more leisure to congratulate ourselves on our lucky escape and to conjecture what would have happened under slightly different circumstances of the accident. If, for instance, the boulder had landed three feet further forward, it would have crashed through the car lines of the cabin house and pinned me to my bunk. Or if the wherry had not been lashed across the cockpit, the boulder might have fallen inboard and taken us to the bottom with it. If the barge, in canting over, had not floated our bow line clear of the Samson post, and if the amidship bollard had not been carried away, the strength of our four lines would have held us close to it in a position to receive the entire 200 tons of jetty rock. These were the major possibilities, and the minor escapes seemed no less miraculous. For example, our two compasses bracketed the wherry, one in its fixed position on the cabin bulkhead and the other temporarily placed just abaft the small boat. Neither was so much as scratched. The shrouds, spars and all the rigging, with the exception of one backstay runner block, which Al easily repaired, escaped injury, and we lost overboard no equipment except an agate wash basin, two rope fenders and half a pound of butter which one of us slid on as he hit the deck. The extent to which Hippocampus rolled under the impact was shown in three ways. First, by the opened cover of our chronometer box. Second, by the high water mark on the clothes locker overhead. And third, by a dent in the woodwork left by a falling fire extinguisher. This extinguisher normally hangs from a hook on the port side abaft the galley about five feet from the deck. It detached itself and struck the face of the clothes locker opposite at a point only one foot lower. All this indicated that the yawl rolled nearly to 75 degrees and we thanked our ton of outside ballast for bringing us back to an even keel. Chiefly, however, we thanked Hippocampus herself and her designer and builder for being the staunchest boat of her length afloat. Her two-inch oak frames and one-inch planking took the shock so evenly that when, upon our arrival in Jacksonville, a boat builder looked her over, he promised that in four days she would be as good as new. This boat builder was F.J. Davenport of the Riverside Boat Manufacturing Company, to whose capable attention I take pleasure in referring other yachtsmen who may find themselves in trouble in Jacksonville. Without hauling us out, he had two men at work on the side Tuesday morning, and by Friday evening only two patches of new canvas on our cabin house and deck told the story of the casualty. Three short lengths of plank secured with three-inch brass screws, an eight-foot section of the cover strip, a twelve-foot piece of oak combing, and two or three pieces of half-round. These constituted the items of lumber that went to rejuvenate the hippocampus. The wherry was turned over to Andrews, another Jacksonville builder, and before we were again ready to sail, she was floating as saucily as before under our counter, a new stern piece of cypress replacing the broken part. Priming and paint were applied to our side and deck, and on Sunday morning, one week behind schedule, we were ready to renew our travels. Needless to say, if we had had the ordering of events apportioned to us by destiny, we should have omitted what Paul calls rocking the boat. But having already learned in stress of weather what the little yawl is good for, we now know what she is made of, and we are more than ever confident that the staunchness of her timbers will carry us to the journey's end. One word more to close the episode of the avalanche. 
as we were limping away from Mayport on our return trip to Jacksonville, a shrill-voiced lady of the port called to us, Well, I guess you'll know better next time than to tie to a rock barge. Indeed we shall, and when passing under drawbridges of the lift type, we shall expect them to fall on us. We shall be prepared for blizzards in the tropics and water spouts in the Panama Canal. On every point, we shall try to meet the unexpected more than halfway. Anticipation is only one of the many joys of cruising. That's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate's level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.